Greetings, this is Ginger Donnell. I'm so excited to welcome back Maria Hupfield to Broken Boxes. Before sharing our conversation, I want to read Maria's artist statement to update you all on her practice as it exists presently. Transdisciplinary artist Maria Hupfield activates her creations in live performances. She is interested in the production of shared moments that open spaces for possibility and new narratives. In her work, these moments of connection are recalled and grounded by coded and recoded, hand-sewn, industrial felt creations and other material mashups worn on the body. An urban off-reservation member of the Anishinaabeg people, she belongs to a Saxing First Nation in Ontario. Hupfield is deeply invested in embodied practice, native feminisms, collaborative process, craft, and textiles. Sound is also a very important element to Maria Hutfield's performative work. So before I share our conversation, I want to open the program up with a collage of live sound excerpts from three of Maria's performance works. Electric prop and hum freestyle performance with Maria Hutfield and Tusia Dabrowska at Mad Museum, the Gibney Dance Theatre, and the Brick Media House. All Places, All Times at Bronx Museum of the Arts, a performance by Maria Hupfield and featuring Laura Ortman, and also The One Who Keeps Giving from her solo exhibition of the same title, as documented at the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery in Toronto. All of these performances took place between 2015 and 2018.
Hi, Maria. Thank you for coming back to join me again. Um, the first times we were able to chat and work together um, were in 2016 around the project Call Response, where you were one of the curators or organizers of and which amplified the work of First Nations, Inuit, Métis women and artists as central to the strength and healing of their communities. And now here we are, five years later, for another chat. <laughs> and I'm so grateful to have worked with you at varying levels and to continue to build our friendship over these years. So thank you for coming back to Broken Boxes. And I know you've moved back from Canada after a long time in the U.S., living and working in New York, and I'm excited to learn more about where your life and practice are now. So before we really dig in, can you introduce yourself and describe how you take up space in the world at this time? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much, Ginger. It's great to be here. Uh, I guess I'll introduce myself more in an anti-colonial way, right? Um, for, considering my bio is more all of those colonial acknowledgements and so on. Um, so I am currently based in Toronto, um, Toronto, Canada, which is on the shores of Lake Ontario. So we're looking at the Great Lakes region, which is where I'm from. So I'm from a community called Wasoxing First Nation, and um, where I grew up off reserve. And the work I'm doing here is with uh, the Mississauga of the Credit First Nation. So they're the ones who have the treaty with the Canadian government um, for Toronto. And they're also connected to the Anishinaabe Nation as well. So my relations, even though they're from a different community. So Toronto, like many other urban centers, really is um, home to a lot of different ind urban indigenous people now, and also historically was a sort of gathering place. And at different times throughout history, different people occupied the space. Um, so that's kind of positioning myself in regards to where I am. Um, and then having arrived here from Brooklyn, New York, where I spent basically a decade. And I, that, that's where I was the last time we spoke. Um, so Lani Lenape, um, yeah, totally crazy situation. Um, and I've circled back to my home territory, which has been, um, insane during this pandemic. <laughs> so <laughs> this is where I am. Um, so Anishinaabe, um, I'm Martin Clan, Wabaje Jindodam, Wasaksing Mitonjaba, Anishinaabe Minua Jaganash. So I'm both Anishinaabe and Jaganash through my um, maternal side. And my father is um, second generation or his parents were second generation Dutch and British, and he was born in Montreal. So a lot of connections. Um, my parents met at, at art school. So art has always been hugely a part of my life. Art, music, all of that. Um, yeah. That's beautiful that art's always been a part of your life. I guess I didn't really realize that your parents were... Um were artists were art i mean i know that your mom was from one of your solo exhibitions you have a painting that your mom painted correct um yeah. can you talk about how art was in your in your world as a young person sure i mean i think my parents as a biracial couple were very supportive and that was a, one of the ways that they connected so we had posters by Norval Morso, the first show he had, you know, like all of these amazing um, influences around, around us growing up. Um, what can I really say about that? I come from a family of makers, like my dad is now a master boat builder. And on my mother's side, we had a lot of basket makers, um, quill boxes, my aunties were all um, my Auntie Clara, I'd go over there and she would be like quilling away. You know, it's just one of those things. 
Um, so I'm very, um, very much aware of that, but also where I grew up, what it's such a beautiful place. So it's on the Canadian shield, you know, fresh water, windblown pines, you know, um, cottage country, lots of tourists. So we had a, a huge tourist economy where a lot of what was being made by native people in the area and other communities was really seen as, you know, product for sale to non-native folks, but really other survival and really also out of, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit and caring for your family and providing for your family. So we did, so art was, for me, very multifaceted. And then also, I didn't really see a distinction growing up um, between things like music and all of that, because both my parents play guitar, you know, they're singing, there's a lot of, um, you know, basically like these very young hippie type parents, <laughs> you know, and we're just running crazy around all the time. <laughs> um, yeah, it was you know, it's quite, I mean, in some ways I felt like I wasn't prepared for the world <laughs> growing up, but um, in hindsight, in other ways, I really was prepared in some very foundational ways, but very much a, a country mouse who was super curious about the world and wanted to know what's going on out there um, and, and be able to get out in the world and be, take part and be a part of what I was, um, of what was yeah what is in the world as well right mm, definitely and i love the way you state in your bio that you identify as an off-res anishinaabe belonging to wasaksing first nation ontario canada it feels like language around indigenous identity such as claiming and belonging are very important to consider right now um, to be accountable to the communities who we position ourselves in relationship to and to get specific on those ties, um, like you were talking about how you grew up with your aunties and the making as part of the belonging, you know, the land as part of the belonging. And can you unpack a bit about how you arrived at this way of naming your belonging to place and people and what this means to you personally and also maybe what the importance of belonging and claiming holds in a broader sense for indigenous people yeah wow that's a lot um so uh, <laughs> yeah no pressure it, but <laughs> sure. unpack <laughs> i mean i think it's it's probably it's pretty straightforward really uh it's something i've always um, wanted to have visible in my bio and it's something that you know I'm married to an artist as well and we collaborate and so when Jason and I talk about our bios he's like oh, I'm gonna exclude it and I'm like no you're not you need to be visible you know your people need to see you you need to be able to be um, identified by our own people so that we can signal to each other and so we've kind of gone back and forth on this and to me, it was always important that my community can see me and that they can find me and connect with me and that I'm, I'm there. So it's a very sort of codified way of writing it because I know I've had people say um, this off res part, right? But people know what that means, right? Um, so just wanting to be visible in that sense. And originally I thought it was a very as a very political minded person, I felt like, yeah, I'm gonna call myself a citizen of, right? Because we're a nation, just like Canada is a nation. And, but more recently I changed my thinking on that because of Kim Tallbear, where I was hearing her in a, on a podcast and she was talking about, we don't need to model these colonial forms of governance. And so that got me thinking about, well, if I'm not using citizen, um, how can I point to this other idea of kinship and relations, right? Um, because we can say we have treaties with um, the ones who stand, who are like the trees. We can say we have treaties with all of our other relatives. But um, so this idea of belonging really grounds me in my community. And I feel 
fortunate that my family, my parents made that effort when I was young to, for my mother to be close to our community. And, and through that, knowing, you know, that I know who the, who my family is, who my relations are. I see them. I see myself in them. You know, I see my mom in myself when I look in the mirror all the time. Um, and so I think that that is where a lot of that comes from in terms of belonging. So, and it also points to this idea of work. So that belonging takes work. It's not something people don't just run to you and say, you're one of us, come with me. I mean, that can happen, right? If we recognize each other, um, but it's also about the work I do on my part to know who I am. And that's work I've done throughout my whole life um, to be present, to show up, to support, to help my family. If they call, they know I'm here. And that's also a commitment I'm doing now by living in Toronto. There's a lot of people putting me to work now in a lot of different ways. So I can't run away from that, right? I can't hide from that responsibility. And also being at this age I am now, that comes with additional responsibility as well, right? Now I'm stepping into other roles in my community, whether it's here in Toronto or um, beyond. And so, um, yeah, that's that idea of to belong, right? Yeah, no, I, I really resonate with that. And is there, is there any, any points of, I guess, any points of knowledge building that you can share with people who um, are navigating like displacement in a way that you haven't had, you know, of how to do it right or wrong. I know that profiting off of identity can become very toxic and that's something that we all need to be accountable to. And I think that's the slippery slope within the art world. So so what, what have you learned on how to be accountable to your community, take up space, but also like, like be aware of the space you're taking up, I guess. Sure. Well, that depends. There's so many different communities, right? <laughs> you can be accountable yeah. to. Of course. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's a, um, I don't know if I have a, a quick answer to that. I think that's something in terms of taking up space, maybe the best way of thinking of that, um, if we go back to this idea of belonging and standing with, right? Um, not speaking for all of this, all of that comes with a worldview and to take an to take a to take a lead from um, our note from our, a page from the Maori filmmakers when they go into a production they bring everyone with them right they bring the whole crew so we're looking at across the board there's not just one who's the individual genius right <laughs> but it's that it's all of them and so I suppose that. Um, follows my thinking as well, that when I enter into these spaces, I'm aware that how much I don't want to be the last one. And sometimes I'm the first one or the only one. So I want to, in that time, bring as many people as I can and ask questions. And a lot of that has to do and comes back to relations and maintaining that with the institutions, um, which could be asking them like, who else do you have? Um, if it's a group show, who else is in the show? Recommending people. So bringing, bringing um, what I can with me to those spaces. And of course that's a tough thing because often what you're bringing isn't seen as valued, but that's a separate, uh, <laughs> that's a whole separate thing. We can talk about that after. But anyway, so that's, that's a strategy. And one of the people who I really respect is, um, Mikanuk Miguans, who is doing their, um, who I met in New York and is from Manitoulin Island and now works at U of T alongside me. So they're my colleague and they work in art history and they talk about, um, and they're a curator at the museum at the campus. And their area is specifically Anishinaabe people. But one of the things that 
MIC does is when they go into archives, they bring a maker with them. And so this is a very radical idea that suddenly it's not Mick going in there like I have an authority about weaving. They're bringing a weaver in who's like, no, look at this. This is what you need to think about. So this idea of having someone in the room with you holds you accountable in another kind of way and introduces you to other forms of knowledge. So they're really seeing in that way that research as a collaboration. Um, and I, I feel like I approach what I do when I'm thinking of performances and other people I'm working with, because I often collaborate in my performances, that I'm adapting a similar kind of way of working. And of course, that's changing now because I'm here. So I have access to another, a whole other range of artists, whereas in Brooklyn, it wasn't necessarily just Indigenous artists, right? So I was looking at other, all kinds of other performance artists. Um, so anyway, so yeah, there's that's different things. Beautiful. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to kind of like tease, tease apart what that means to be accountable. And I love, I love like kicking the door open or leaving it open or, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel like so, so, so often I'm circling around, coming in the back door. I mean, being invited for something. They don't really know what, what's in store. And then I get in there and I do something. And I feel like a lot of the work I do is um, not, maybe not always understood up front, but that's what happens when you're doing something that is maybe new. It takes a few runs at it, <laughs> you know, a few cycles before people catch on. And then, and then after that, everyone will follow, right? They'll jump in or they'll, they'll replicate. So um, definitely. And that work can be so selfless, you know, I mean, it's not the kind of work that you ever really get recognition for or amplified for because it's actually dismantling toxic individualism. So there is like this really humble, like letting go of ego space within that exact process and that's complicated as an artist when we we, we want to glorify artists and the individual <laughs> oh yeah absolutely you can easily get caught up in that I mean I feel like in my career that hasn't so much been the case like I don't feel like I'm the artist who people were like we're giving you a show as soon as I you know let's do this like if anything I'm always they meet me and they I get treated like I'm an emerging artist every time, right? So <laughs> that's just the burden I carry. So I've had to, I've, I'm in it for the long run though. It's okay. Yeah. Like I, it's not okay, <laughs> but I'm in it for the long run. And I know that. And I, um, yeah. And I'm at a really good place as well. I mean, I'm, I'm not complaining. I get a lot of acknowledgement. I've worked really mm -hmm. hard. Like I think I've worked really hard and, and it's, um, it pays off. Yeah. Yeah. Emerging since the beginning of time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and speaking of community, can we talk a bit about your work as faculty at the University of Toronto? Um, and if you just want to kind of um, break down what you're doing there, but specifically, I'm interested in the Indigenous Creation Studio. And I would love to invite you to speak more about that. And I know we have been in conversation just as peers about that work over this year. And I, I, I just think that the type of think tank generational sharing that you're developing through that work is so intriguing. And I'd love to hear more about the academic side of your practice and that work. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and thank you, because you were really helpful when um, we we're starting to put together the, the document that was helping to, um, yeah, the, the living document that was help, that we were using as a resource for the students that when they're working in the, the studio, that they had a guide in terms of thinking, how do we navigate digital spaces, right? When all this blew up with COVID and everything went online, right? And you were one of those people who, we, who I reached out to in terms of thinking about how, how do we deal with toxicity on the internet? How do we create protocol, right, around this? Um, well, how so that students who are whether they're indigenous or non-indigenous know how to navigate these spaces so um yeah i was wooed <laughs> back to the institution 
with a dream job, really. So one of the um, things that we have here in Canada is we have a lot of hires happening around Indigenous faculty. So getting us in the institutions, whether it's as curators or educators or scholars. And I was, I saw this position, which is for performance and media arts at the University of Toronto. And I thought, okay, well, I'll reach out to them. And as soon as I did, they responded so supportively and welcoming. And one of the um, things that we went after was something called a Canadian research chair position, which basically means it comes with all this extra funds. Um, that are available for me to do all kinds of projects within the university, which typically means hiring lots of students to work with me around my research, right? And so I, I jumped at this because I had been seeing other performance artists like Kristen Clifford, who, you know, her work is about rape she's dealing with menstrual blood and she says by being in the institution it affords her a certain amount of credibility around her practice and so i think that's something that for me was another kind of way of being like well i'm becoming bulletproof right like um, i have so many titles now <laughs> that how can you argue about my work when I have all this authority and, you know, from the Canadian government, from the University of Toronto, all of this behind me backing what I'm doing and saying what I'm doing is um, valued and useful. And I think, you know, so um, the Indigenous Creation Studio is part of that, where it's this radical idea of rather than have an Indigenous Creation Lab, which is usually what would happen in academia, is that I'm saying, no, it's a, an artist studio for making around Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing and doing in, in all that that contains. And um, yeah, so it's looking at this idea of like embodied knowledge, storytelling, all these things. You know, I love the terms that you were using around think tank, you know, bringing people together. So of course this has changed during the pandemic because physically I have this kick-ass space that's being, you know, and then another space that's being renovated for me specifically for this. We're supposed to be buying all this equipment, um, running all kinds of events, bringing people in, and that just had to switch to online. Um, the other two components of the work I'm doing there, specifically around that research, involves uh, not only having a physical space in the school that they're committing to us um, as a, you know, a classroom kind of space, or not classroom, but a studio space, right? but also to have uh, to think about land. So I proposed a medicine garden. So this idea of having space on campus for land-based practice and learning. And then the third is a digital space. So looking at a digital archive, um, which is really a subversive project around this idea of archive, because it's not technically an archive. It's more of a curatorial project where I'm curating what is in this archive, right, as an artist project. And that's super fun and crazy because I get to transmediate all kinds of ideas around what an object is and how can that exist outside of the white cube as we know it, right, or outside of a, of a archive, you know, a you know, historical archive or where it's collecting dust, but rather digitally, what does that look like? And that's pretty, um, you know, I'm not the only one doing this kind of work, but I'm definitely, um, you know, one of the few doing this work around where I'm not working with existing archival work, but rather thinking, how do we document? How do we preserve? How do we show? And this is how it connects back to my practice. How do we show something in a multitude of ways with everything that comes with it, right? Like how do we see it, but also see it when it's worn or when it's performed or when, you know, when it not rather than just laid out flat, right? Or on a pedestal, but all those dimensions that come with it, that life, that culture. That's so inspiring to me. And it kind of brings me into like the curiosity about 
your work. And so let's talk about your art a little bit, speaking about it living, you know. Um, uh, specifically, I want to talk about the show, your solo show that just opened, um, Story Work. And it's your most recent solo exhibition. And the gallery statement notes that the title of this exhibition is about carrying living knowledge through our actions, clothing, words, and how we live. This really resonates with me um, because as a performance artist and maker, you remind your viewer that all planes of or all art making can exist in one moment, even when it's in a static gallery space. And what a beautiful challenge to find ways to activate performance through objects. And this ties into this archive, this living archive also, that you and, um, and your peers are doing. And can you walk us through what we may experience in story work, your solo exhibition, and some of the pieces you're excited about? Like, what are you up to now? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the... The challenges is how do you have an exhibition open during a pandemic? So the other part about being in Toronto is we are still in lockdown. Like a lot of us are fully vaccinated, but we're still because of um, the number of cases, um, we're still navigating that, right? So with that in mind, um, last year when the pandemic hit, uh, my gallery, um, Oog Charbonneau, who runs the gallery, the owner, called me up and he just checked in. He's like, how are you doing? You know, he just was seeing where I was at. And I said, you need to give me a solo next year at this time. <laughs> and I remember I just panicked because I'm like, I, shit, like I'm going to need to do something to pull out of this. And what I imagined at the time was like, I'm going to be there, I'll do performances in the gallery. It's going to be crazy. I'm going to make all this work. It's going to be, I needed that. I needed that so bad to have something to work towards because otherwise, you know, like every other artist, my calendar got cleared out, right? I mean, right away, then it got filled with other other stuff but at that moment that's what I needed so you know he, and he we've been together a while and he's really backed me every step of the way and so um basically this is what um the result was where I spent a lot of the time in the pandemic reading you know thinking about my materials reading other mainly Indigenous academics who were, who had tons of theory and thoughts about methodology and all kinds of stuff, like um, looking at other artists, more historical work, all of this. So a real deep dive. And story work came out of a book I was looking at um, by um, Joanne Archibald, and it was on Indigenous story work. And I just really took to that. And I don't know, like, I feel like it's just the beginning. Like there's still so much to what she writes about. She's an educator, um, but, and, you know, it's not even getting into things like knowledge keepers or any of that. Like it really was just me talking about the work that we do around story and, how that's connected to us and all of that. So um, all that work that's there is, it's stuff that I was making when I was in Brooklyn. It's stuff that showed in my previous show at The Herd that um, Aaron Joyce curated, you know, that beautiful exhibition. And it was a way to bring that to Canada and to share it with people here and to my gallery who was like I gotta see this work bring it here we Canada needs it so we brought it and worked on um, some more display strategies a bit more and that was a way for me to take um, this work that previously I was thinking of it as performance like how do you show stuff that's connected to performance and now frame it within this idea of story work right into this other um other positioning, which is, you know, where my interests are at now. Um, yeah, so that, so that's it. So the, like the radical things for me are, 
I don't know if you could, actually it's not really radical, but having wooden support structures that are made out of maple and are beautiful. And then these gorgeous, like clear casters. So you can push it around the gallery, you know, like just so you could imagine me being arriving and then doing something in the space, right? So just this kind of um, how to create, transform a static exhibition into a site of possibility and new imagining. And um, that's pulsating with all kinds of energy. Yeah, I love the way that um, constraints allow us to think about things and explore, I guess explores, not the right word, <laughs> to think about things and like move into visioning that you wouldn't think of if you didn't have those constraints. Like you're not allowed to perform in the space. So creating the moving parts to embody you and to have like that, that like living essence through maple, like moving through the space. I just love that. And so thank you so much for like kind of explaining that and giving me some visual visualization for that. Um, yeah, like even the, you'll probably remember it, but I had the speaker with the antlers mounted on it. Yes. So that's in the space as well. Mm. Um, so even the presence of that implies that, you know, through a mounted microphone that someone could come in and be amplified and could fill that space with sound. So it, you know, it takes us in the same way that, um, story would right traditional storytelling that we see it and we imagine and we start to go through different possibilities so that it becomes a site of imagining and possibility mm, yes here's to imagining and possibility <laughs> and i just want to hold those words kind of as anchors as i kind of ask this next question <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> what is one of the biggest challenges for Indigenous women in the art world? And how are you finding your way through that space? And I feel like those two words kind of like <laughs> need to nestle around that question, which is so heavy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the obvious is, of course, patriarchy, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> And how that positions, you know, Lee Miracle talks about that power triangle and, or pyramid and how Native women are at the bottom of that, right, and seen as less than human. Um, and that was like decades ago when Lee was talking about that. Um, but more pressingly now, um, I would say the, the thing that... Um, really holds Native women down are um, white women, and specifically <laughs> white women who pretend to be Native, because um, they don't have our bodies, they don't have our lived experience, um, but they, they take our money, and they wear our skins, and they're basically trying to steal our spirits, which is, um, you know, it's a really... Yeah, and there's no no substance to what they're presenting. It's very superficial. It's very imagined and made up. You know, it's a, a stereotype that gets supported. And then that gets supported by other white women who, um, you know, so I think that holds down um, a lot of our Native women artists who are making amazing work and can get out there. And I'm thinking specifically, you know, there's a lawyer from Gitigan Zibi, which is in, um, in Ottawa or by Ottawa here in Canada. And her name is Claudette Commanda. And she specifically talks about the way that um, the way that her elders would say, you know, in terms of these people coming, they're going to take your land, they're going to take your stories, they're going to take your material objects, and they're going to keep taking, they're going to take your lives, and then they're going to come for our spirits. And she specifically refers to that in relationship to this. And, and I think there's, a, it takes a lot of strength to be able to recognize and, and um, identify that and prevent it. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's very, very heavy stuff. And I feel like um, our generation is moving through it in a way that, I mean, it's always existed, this type of complexity with identity and toxic like extractiveness um, from white people and from um, people who are lost. <laughs> um, but um, this kind of is reminding me of the work I do as an accomplice. Um, and I, I've named this before, but I feel like accompliceship can be um, perpetuated by anyone to another group of people, you know, um, and a lot of your work through the years calls on accompliceship and it might be something that it, and it might be an important space to carve out for white people who can still be involved in the community without taking, without um, shape-shifting or um, taking spirit, you know. And what um, accompliceship is one of my focus points for Broken Boxes. Um, and what have you learned as an indigenous woman about how to ask for what support is needed from your accomplices and how can accomplices do better? And maybe what is the intersection with that and the previous question and your answer to that? Yeah, so that's pretty simple for me. And it's listen to native women, you know, listen, you know, build those relationships. It's um, and don't treat treat us like we're disposable or interchangeable because we're not, you know, it's that complexity and richness that adds, um, that adds the real strength to so much, right? And that brings the wisdom and the connection. So, um, you know, it's pretty easy to tell right away uh, who you're going to continue to work with when you have a co simple conversation and you realize they're not listening to you. They have their own agenda. And so then a, a decision has to be made, which is, well, how much, you know, what, where's, who stands to gain in that relationship? And is it something that needs to be shut down and moved on? Or is there a possibility that you can um, open that space up? So I feel like a lot of um, my conversations are these kinds of exercises in diplomacy, right? But the other thing is um, the reality and the priv privilege I have at this point where I can, um, where I have stability and I don't have to do everything. So I don't have to continue to have those same conversations and fights that are so exhausting and they're so depleting. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm laughing cause I'm seeing you naughty, but yeah. it's, it's not, you know, it's, not you. it's not a, a, a fun sort of situation, but um, yeah, the, the, when it comes to other galleries, when I say, you know, if I bring up other artists and say, have you thought about these people right away, if they're listening, right, then, then it's easy to tell if they're like, sure, great, or um, if they trust you. And so a, a lot of that kind of trust building happens given that we have this history of mistrust and broken trust and broken promises and um, silencing. So the other part of that, of course, is um, really just having, knowing what you want, knowing how to state yourself, <laughs> stand up for yourself and position things and say, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. Or yes, um, this is how it's going to be. And as the artist, you know, as an artist, we have a lot of authority. So even if as a Native woman, we don't, as an artist, we do. And so the recognition of that power that of, of what um, we're entitled to and what we can ask for and be respected for um, in those spaces in terms of of that relationship as well. Um, and sometimes that's just a matter of knowing. And sometimes that's a matter of um, having to, you know, back yourself up with, you know, I'm not emerging. <laughs> it's just uh, pointing to what's around you, having whatever that is, that's going to, you can represent to them and, and um, share. I think New York has taught me so much about, about that. Um, that I can't sit back 
and complain that I'm being passed over because it's like, well, what am I doing? Who am I talking to? And thankfully that there's people who are smart and quick and on their game who will stand with you when you have, um, not everyone will get things, not everyone will be on board, but when you do have someone, they're in, they're all in, right? Yeah, and I think that that's um, a beautiful sentiment. It's making me think about this like scarcity tactic that gets like kind of um, hammered into our communities, you know, that there's not enough for everyone. And I think that what you're talking about really points to like the pivot, like there is enough for everyone. You just have to go into the spaces that um, are ready and want to receive and build with you. And I just, I really appreciate you kind of naming that. And I think that that's exactly what accomplices are, are ready for. They want to know how to help and support us to build, but not everybody's there. So you got to find your people, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Who You have to build your team, right? Like no artist is alone in what, in what they do, um, for sure. Yeah. And so just to wrap up the conversation, um, I'm just going to ask you, what advice do you have for other artists, maybe young people or um, artists who may be looking up to you at this time in your career? Do you have any wisdom to share um, that or wisdom that has been shared with you that you would like to pass on? Well, okay. If you put it that way, um... <laughs> Now I feel like I'm going to have to look back to all, all the... Like, You're not emerging, Maria. You have emerged a long I've time emerged. ago. Fully, fully present. Um, you got wings, girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'm soaring. Uh, yeah, I feel like there's, there's so much around that. I mean, but the first thing that comes to mind for me is that... Um, the visual arts is a toxic environment, right? It is, so it is bad. a hard place. It's not easy on anyone, yeah. right? <laughs> no one has a good go at it. <laughs> we all have, we have to play their strengths. So it, keeping that in mind, um, and had I known right, <laughs> that, that was what was ahead for me, maybe I would have decided to go into music, right? Maybe being a musician was... <laughs> <laughs> a better thought um but no I'm all in so keeping that in mind I think it really is about um keeping your eyes on your own path so it's not about comparing right it's about elevating um and by keeping my eyes on my path and evaluating, reevaluating <laughs> where I'm going and having a plan. So I always do well whenever I have a plan and I can see what I need to do. It generally, you know, I can get there. It's when I don't know that I get lost. And it's those moments when I have had to learn that I can depend on other people too. It's not just up to me. Right? <laughs> um, and in that way, they will help, right? So I can reach out. There's lots of people out there who I can reach out to. Um, and so keeping that in mind, the other thing that happened when I moved to New York was I met Jean Quick to see Smith, who just inspired me so much. And I remember thinking of her as like referring to her as like my fairy godmother, because whenever something good happened, it was because Jean had recommended or had, you know, and I think that for an artist to have that generosity takes um, a lot of strength of spirit, but it also means that they're at a place where they don't feel threatened, where they feel that they can help. And one of the things that she does super well is whenever she talks, she likes to acknowledge her predecessors. So for me, that's about also citation, naming each other, pointing to each other, right? So if I saw something that Rebecca Belmore did and loved it, I'm gonna be like Rebecca Belmore and mention her and call, you know, evoke her in the space that way. And if I see another artist who's working with fluorescent 
fabrics and I love it, then yeah, let's make a connection because then suddenly there's this whole movement of connection um, through materials and language that happens. And I don't think we, I see enough of that. I don't hear enough of that where we can um, basically build our own canon and assert ourselves and have that strength and confidence. Uh, I think there's still a lot of cultural confidence that's happening right now, but really make that connection between, you know, we have so many Indigenous academics who are theorizing. We have this knowledge, just put that together with the art too, right? <laughs> it can happen in multiple ways. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I was, it really is through visual art that I feel like I've been able to find my own um, freedom and mobility around the ways that I have felt limited through um, through gender. Um, you know, I'm a light-skinned Native woman, so I don't necessarily have those same issues around race. I've had a lot of privilege through that. Um, people don't feel threatened by me in the same kind of way that they might have felt by my mother. So um, I think that there's a certain amount of privilege as well that helps me to remember that um, I have all my other family with me. I have all, you know, all my other relations, all my other kin and siblings that I need to to hold up. And sometimes that means stepping back and and that also means nominating and that means recommending and referring and all of that really good stuff. Um, that you do as an auntie, that you do as a mother, all this extra labor and work, you know, as a wife, as a sister, a daughter. And so those come into play as well. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Maria, for taking this time to be with me. It just means so much to me to share, to share your words, to share your knowledge, your way of being and um, your, your giving way you know I think that it's really inspiring and we need to practice that more and more and so thank you for thank you for sharing all of this with us today really appreciate it Shmiigwech. it's good to see you you too we are we are You must stand to 
lie down Your courage will not fail you You will find it in my song I shall never leave you You will not be alone I'll stand by and watch you grow